Good morning, everyone. Let me welcome you once again to Clemson Presbyterian this morning. Um, If we've not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Brian Counts, and I'm one of the pastors here, and so glad that you all came to join us to worship our great God this morning. If you would please turn with me to Galatians chapter 3 this morning. We're going to look at verses 10 through 14, and just while you're turning there, let me just take a moment, if I can, to thank you all for how much you have welcomed my family to this church, to this place, how much you have helped how much you have prayed. A lot of you prayed along with us for the right house at the right time. Some of you know uh, we've spent our first two nights in that house this weekend. So thank you. Praise God. Uh, lots of you came to pitch in to help, and we are uh, feeling more settled after only a couple of nights than we ever thought we could. So thank you so much. We've loved getting to know this place. We've loved getting to know this church. We've loved getting to know all of you, this church's history, its past, but also now starting to think and pray and dream about what God will continue to do through this place that he has in his great will and his great wisdom placed right here next to this great university, this great town, and we pray that God would continue to do great things through all of us here. Now, let me set the stage for Galatians chapter 3 verses 10 through 14 by uh, sharing with you a little of the details of an essay that I came across a couple of years ago. I heard it quoted somewhere. I went and looked it up. I read it and I found it fascinating. It was an essay from 2017 by a man named Wilford McClay, whose work I hadn't heard of. Um, it appeared in the Hedgehog Review, which is a journal out of the University of Virginia. This essay was titled, The Strange Persistence of Guilt. The Strange Persistence of Guilt. And in that essay, the author reflects on how for the last 150 years or so, Western civilization has embarked on an experiment, an experiment to privatize and individualize morality. And it was thought by doing away with transcendent categories of right and wrong that a couple of things would happen. One, that we would produce less guilty people and all of the harmful effects that come from guilt. It was also thought that we might make a more tolerant and free society. David Brooks, in one of his columns where he reflects on this essay from Wilford McClay, said this, we thought we would produce a culture of easygoing relativism with no common criteria by which to judge moral action, we'd all become blandly non-judgmental, sort of chill, pluralistic versions of Snoop Dogg. You do you, and I'll do me, and we'll all be cool about it, whatever feels right. But Brooks says, instead of that, what society has become, and I love this phrase, a free-form demolition derby of moral confrontation. We tried to do away with transcendent categories of right and wrong. We've tried to do away with guilt, and yet what we get is a free-form demolition derby of moral confrontation. And guilt has persisted. It's stubborn. It hasn't gone away. Why? Well, he says that it persists because we are confronted now more than ever with the wrong in the world. Not just through television, but through social media and the internet and 24-hour news cycles. We're always confronted with the evil in the world, the injustice, the poverty, the corruption, the brokenness. And we see it, and we have power to do something about something. If you see a starving child, he says, on the news, you could... 
buy a ticket and fly there and do something about that right now. But we're just overwhelmed and we have a feeling of I could do something, but I don't know what and I do nothing and this guilt persists. And then I would add this guilt persists because we know deep down that we have betrayed others. We know deep down that we haven't done all we could, even in our own personal relationships, that we've acted selfishly, that we've used our positions and our words and our deeds to build up ourselves and to hurt others, and so guilt persists. He says that actually guilt hasn't gone anywhere. We just don't have the same categories to label and understand it. Let me give you this lengthy quote. He says, those of us living in the developed countries of the West find ourselves in the tightening grip of a paradox, one whose shape and character have so far largely eluded our understanding. It is the strange persistence of guilt as a psychological force in modern life. If anything, the word persistence, he says, understates the matter. Guilt has not merely lingered, it has grown even metastasized into an ever more powerful and pervasive element in the life of the contemporary West. Even as the rich language formerly used to define it has withered and faded from discourse, and the means of containing its effects, let alone obtaining relief from it, have become ever more elusive. Isn't he right? Isn't that absolutely right? Because we've lost those categories to talk about guilt, it's actually now harder to identify. It operates, he says, on an unconscious level. Perhaps some of the malaise and dissatisfaction, he says, we feel in our lives. It's not always guilt, but some of it might be. We just don't have the words to put to it anymore in our modern society. He quotes, actually, Freud, who I don't often quote well, but... He says this, guilt is crafty, a trickster and chameleon capable of disguising itself, hiding out, changing its size and appearance, even its location, all the while managing to persist and deepen. And that's the end of my lengthy quotes. But let me ask you this, do you experience it? Have you known the prison of guilt? Maybe some of that malaise and dissatisfaction in your life you feel is a result of that guilt that dwells within, I think, every human heart to some degree. How do we deal with it? How can we be free from it? Well, I think these ancient words from Paul, from God in Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, point a way forward for us. So let's read them together. This is God's word. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's pray. Father, we've read your words. We thank you for them. And now we pray for the help of your Holy Spirit. For me as I speak, for everyone as they listen, that you might fill us all with your spirit for your glory and our good. 
And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So two points this morning to help us understand this passage. First, the curse of guilt, and second, freedom from guilt. So first, the curse of guilt. I think these verses that we've just read offer us two paths forward when it comes to the problem of our guilt. The first path is verse 12. Look with me, and particularly at the end of verse 12. The one who does them shall live by them. Now, this is a quote from the Old Testament, from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. And the word them refers to the Old Testament law. And you might remember the context of Galatians that we've been talking about every week. Paul planted these churches. He left to plant more. Opponents called the Judaizers come in and start saying, oh, no, 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 you have to also keep God's law in order to be justified, in order to have good standing with God, in order to have His smile and approval, you have to do them, the works of the law. And Paul quotes, again, Leviticus, and he says, if you do them, you will live by them, and live by them means eternal life. He's quoting the Old Testament, and he says, if you do these works of the law, you will have eternal life. So this is the path, the first path forward for our guilt presented by this passage. If you want to be free from guilt, if you want to not be guilty, don't do bad stuff. That's it. Short sermon, we can all go home. You don't want to be guilty, don't do bad stuff. But here's the problem. We fall short. We fall short not just of God's standard, but we fall short even of our own standards that we put in place of them. It's not that easy. This path has a built-in problem, which Paul shares in verse 10, if you'll look back. Again, quoting uh, here, he says, "'Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them.'" I want to highlight there two words, all and abide. Cursed be everyone who does not do all the works of the law. If we want to be morally justified by our own obedience and free from guilt, no problem, just do all of it. Cursed be everyone who does not not abide by all the words of the law. For instance, all of us have some areas of our life where we struggle more than other areas of our life. We want to be judged And we judge ourselves usually by the areas we do best in. And you might look and say, I'm doing really well in this area. And Paul says, no, you have to keep all the works of the law. That's what the Judaizers were doing. They were saying, circumcision, food laws, keep those and you're good. And Paul says, watch out. If you want to keep that much, if you want to be, you think, justified and have good standing before God because of those two parts of the law, then be prepared to keep the whole thing. Keep all of it. And then he highlights this word abide. Not just all of them, but you have to abide by them. What does that word abide mean? Stay in one place a long time. Sometimes we want to judge ourselves by how well we do for an hour or a day, or a week, or a month. But the Old Testament, and Paul here quoting it, says you have to abide by all the works of the law. We can't cherry pick the things we do well in, and we can't cherry pick the times we do well. You have to abide, keep the whole thing over a long period of time. And again, like we said, even if God's law is not your standard, 
Whatever your standard of right and wrong is, and we all have one, do you keep it all the time, every part of it? If your standard is, just be kind to everybody, do you keep that? If your standard is, let them be them and I'll be me, do you keep that all the time? We can't even keep our own laws, much less God's law, which boils down to loving Him and loving others perfectly all the time. So Paul's saying to these Judaizers, fine, you want to keep this much? Go ahead and keep the whole thing all the time. That's all you got to do. That's all you got to do. And so we can't cherry pick those times that we do well either, or those things we do well in. We can't build our self-worth on how well we do in one part of our life versus another, or how well we do for a time. You can think, you know what, I've been really consistent joining in worship every week. I'm doing really well. But you go home and you're mean as a snake to your wife on Thursday. Doesn't count anymore. It doesn't count. You can't think, you know what, I'm going to be a law-abiding citizen. I'm going to not cheat on my taxes, I'm going to do whatever, but I'm going to speak all kinds of evil behind someone else's back that I wouldn't say to their face. And you can't say, you know what, I'm doing really well, I've got the right doctrine down, but I don't care anything about the poor. You see, you're keeping one thing, but not the other. You're keeping it for a season, but not all the time. And so what the law does, it doesn't free us from guilt, but it exposes our guilt, It doesn't free us from it, it exposes it. That's what the law does. The law diagnoses our problem, but it can never heal. The law can diagnose, but it can never heal. Saying, you know what, I'm guilty before the law, so I'm going to double down on my efforts to keep all of God's commandments only proves more so, does it not, that we fail. It's like going to the doctor and getting a scan. And from that scan, getting the diagnosis that you have a terrible cancer. You share this news with your friends. And they say, well, what's the treatment? What are you going to do? And you say, I think I'm going to double down on these scans. I'm going to get more and more scans. And that's going to make me better. When you say the law is what's going to justify me before God, it's like saying, I'm going to double down on this law. I'm going to double down on it and my effort, and it's going to bring me freedom. It's going to get rid of my guilt. It's going to justify me, and all it's going to do is expose you more and more and more. It's going to diagnose your problem, but it can't heal you. It can't fix you. It can't make you right. That's why Paul said earlier uh, in a passage that we looked at, for if I rebuild what I tear down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. If I put back in place law-keeping and obedience as a way to be justified, all I keep doing is proving myself a sinner. I'm not gaining any ground. I'm still losing it. And that's why Paul says in that verse, we're cursed. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the law. In the Bible, curse is the opposite of blessing. We want to be morally justified by what we do, but we can't. We can't live by, gain eternal life by what we do. And when we try, we wind up anxious We wind up insecure. We wind up fearful and timid because we're always left wondering, have I done enough? Is it enough, God? Is it enough to gain good standing? Is it enough to gain your smile? Or even worse, sometimes it doesn't make us timid and ashamed. It makes us proud, thinking we have done it. I have kept all this law all the time. And that's what we think, then God help us for sure. 
That's a curse to live that way, but I don't think that's exactly the kind of curse Paul means here. I think he means the opposite of eternal life. I think he means the punishment and wrath of God for breaking His holy and perfect law. To curse someone is to denounce them. To curse someone is to reject them. And cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the words of the law. When the Bible speaks about God's wrath, it's not saying God loses His temper. It's not saying God is sinfully angry. Someone once said that God's wrath is His settled opposition to evil and His determination to do something about it. And isn't that the kind of God that really we all want? Not one that says, evil, no problem, no big deal, we'll just look the other way, right? No, we want a God who has settled opposition to evil and is determined to do something about it, but the problem is that evil is us. We want a God that will do something about evil until we find out, oh no, I'm part of the problem. The problem is in me. And so this first path Paul offers to be free of our guilt is a dead end. The curse of guilt. So let's look secondly at freedom from guilt. Now we said over and over in this series on Galatians that you can't be saved by your works. Salvation is not by works. And that's true depending on how you look at it. Because you see, you can earn God's smile by works. Someone did. Jesus did. Jesus, you might say, earned salvation by works. He kept all of God's law all the time. Day, hour, week, month, year, and year out, he loved God and loved others perfectly. And that's why people, I think, in the Gospels were drawn to him. That's why I think we see crowds flocking to him and listening to him and forgetting to eat a meal and then another meal and then another meal. They were so drawn to this man because he loved so well. It made him beautiful, beautiful to behold, beautiful to be around as he continually actually earned God's blessing by what he did. But verse 13 says, yet he became a curse for us. The one who earned God's blessing became a curse. The Bible tells us that Jesus took that curse that we earn, the denouncement, the rejection, the wrath. Jesus, Jesus took that curse for us. He was denounced. He was rejected. He was condemned. But Paul's language here is more startling than that. Because he doesn't say here that Jesus took the curse. He says Jesus became the curse. Jesus became the curse. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul says Christ became sin for us. What does it mean that he became sin or he became a curse? It means he's so identified with sinners like the prostitutes and tax collectors he was with. He so identified with sinners like me and like you that in a very real sense, he became that sin. A total identification with the shamed, the guilty, the denounced, the rejected, and the condemned. 
One commentator said the language here that he became a curse is startling, almost shocking. We should not have dared to use it, but Paul means every word of it. He became a curse as he was hung on a tree. Cursed be everyone who hangs on a tree. Again, quoting Paul here, the Old Testament. In um, in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, we read those words. Most often in the Old Testament, when someone was executed for their crimes, they were stoned. But then they would be hung on a tree as a demonstration of the curse that they had brought on themselves. And so when it became time for Jesus to become a curse for us, he was literally hung on a tree, taking that curse of God, taking his wrath and his anger for you and for me. And that's why Jesus says on that tree, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did you forsake me? Why did you turn your face from me? No more smile from God for Jesus. Instead, forsaking. Because he became that curse. He underwent the wrath of God. And that means you and I will never be forsaken by God. He cannot forsake you if he's already forsaken Jesus for your sin. He cannot curse you if he's already cursed Jesus for your sin. It's impossible. And I love these two words here, for us. He became a curse for us, for you, for me. I love this quote from Sinclair Ferguson talking about that. He says, the lawmaker, Jesus made the laws, the lawmaker became the lawkeeper and then died on behalf of the lawbreaker. The lawmaker became the lawkeeper and died on behalf of the lawbreaker, on behalf of for you. And that leads us to worship it leads us to freedom. It leads us to freedom from guilt. It's the only way our guilt can be truly dealt with because it really happened in time and space. All of our measures to deal with our guilt are just half measures. Either we redefine the game like we talked about in the introduction. We'll just privatize and individualize morality so you can be free of guilt. If morality is subjective, then so is your guilt. And if your guilt is subjective, eh, who cares? But here's the problem. Our guilt is not subjective. Only, yes, we feel it, but it's also objective. It's real. We really betrayed someone. We really said horrible things. We really did unspeakable things. And because of that objective guilt, we had to have an objective solution. We had to have someone take that penalty in time and space for us. So redefining the game doesn't work. Or sometimes we just try to wish it away. A few years ago on the Live Strong website, remember Live Strong? We all wore those yellow bracelets that said Live Strong until the man who started at Lance Armstrong was proven to be a liar and a cheat, and then it wasn't cool to wear the yellow bracelet anymore. But on the Live Strong website, it said if you're struggling with guilt, here's what you do. You put that guilt in an imaginary box, and you throw it off an imaginary cliff. Done. But your guilt isn't imaginary. You need a more than an imaginary solution for real guilt. And so it has to be a real savior on a real tree with real blood and real nails and a real resurrection. And again, it's all through faith. Paul keeps saying this over and over in this epistle, doesn't he? Galatians 3.14. Steve last week shared with us about the indwelling of the promised Holy Spirit that Paul says here is through faith. We don't have to work off our debt. We don't have to now double down on obedience. 
It's all by faith. And the Old Testament saw this coming. That's why Paul also quotes here in verse 11. He says, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. We'll talk more about that next week, even as we talked about it last week when it regards Abraham. But here's the good news. If it's by faith, then it's free. It's free. We've all heard the phrase that when it comes to political freedom, it's not free. Freedom isn't free. Well, this freedom from guilt is free because someone else paid the price. It was not free for Jesus. He had to become a curse. He had to die on a tree. He bought our freedom for us, and he gives it to us freely. And when an individual gets this, the more and more I get it, and I'm continually, Lord willing, being transformed by it, as I pray we all are, it changes so much. Because for so long, we're defined by our mistakes. We define ourselves by our sins, and we hate ourselves for it. Do you know that feeling? How could I have done that? Why did I do that? Why did I do that thing? And that person looked at me, and I knew they were so hurt, but it felt so right, and I even liked it. But now I define myself by it, and I can't get over it. But the more and more you get this, the more and more you're no longer defined by your mistakes. You're no longer defined by your failures or your sin. But you're defined instead by being guilt-free. Because Jesus took all of the wrath for that. We don't have to be defined by those mistakes. And so then actually what becomes true for us is that we're now free to talk about those mistakes. We don't have to hide them from God. And we don't actually even have to hide them from each other anymore. We're free to say, man, I was messed up. I messed up. But God forgave me of this specific thing. Confess your sins to one another, James says. We don't have to hide them because we're not going to be crushed by the guilt and the shame of it anymore. That freedom is ours by faith. It changes an individual. And I would argue the more and more individuals that trust that and rejoice in that, the more and more a church changes as well. To be a more and more humble place. A place where people don't have to come together and act like they have it all together and cover up all of their sin and shame, but they're confessing that and they're becoming a more humble people. And they're like, oh yeah, oh, you struggle with that? I know someone else in my church that struggles with that. He would love or she would love to talk to you about that. I would love to talk to you about my areas of brokenness too. It's becoming a more humble place where those who are experiencing guilt, who are outside the church, are actually seeing examples lived out in people's lives where they've found that freedom from guilt. It becomes a more humble place, but it also becomes a more confident place as well. Because if we're free from guilt and shame, we can engage in God's mission without fear. We can engage in God's mission without fear. We can love the lost and the least. Because we're not so concerned about ourselves anymore. We say, God, what do you want? What do you do? Being free from guilt, far from making us go back to the thing that made us guilty, makes us hate it and go forward together in sharing God's good news. Just to close with, I heard an illustration a few weeks back which makes this point so well. Maybe you heard it too. Do you remember that news story four, five, six weeks ago where the Vincent van Gogh painting Sunflower that hangs in the National Gallery in London Two protesters, in order to make a point about their cause, whatever it was, go up to that famous painting and they throw a couple of cans of tomato soup on it. And then they glue themselves and their hands to the wall. And when we first heard the news and you read that story, like everybody else like me, you thought, 
that painting is ruined. They just trashed a Van Gogh. For what? With tomato soup. But if you go to that museum today, there's not a spot of tomato soup on it. It's perfectly fine. It's pristine. Because it's protected behind a tiny, thin layer of glass that the museum visitor could never see. So all they did was wipe that tomato soup off, and off they go. And it's the same way. When your conscience assails you and smears you, or when Satan smears you, or when someone else smears you and reminds you of your failure and your sin, you don't take that stain anymore. Jesus' blood and righteousness covers you. It wipes right off. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no more guilt. The law is powerless to condemn you. In Christ Jesus, the law is a wonderful guide, but it is powerless to condemn you. And it changes individuals, and it changes churches. Let me pray. Father, we need your grace to believe this, to really believe it deep in our bones. We know it's true when we're in Christ, and yet we're continually finding new corners and areas of our heart, Lord, which need your grace, which need to believe this. Lord, I pray that we would be free from guilt, not because we're perfect, not because our sin isn't real, but because Jesus' blood and sacrifice for us are real. Thank you, Jesus, for becoming the curse for us. Thank you, we also say, for giving us this table, giving us this sacrament to remember it. As we come now, I pray that you would give us also your spirit as we prayed when we came to your word. Fill us with it as we come to this meal which you gave us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.